Part two of The Night the Mountain Fell, the story of the Montana Yellowstone Earthquake by Edmund Christofferson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two. Outside World the Montana-Idaho-Wyoming area where the quake hit is a big, sprawled-out area where it's easy to get the feeling of isolation when everything's normal, the roads open, the phone lines and lights working. In one shattering blow, the earthquake cut most of this area's access and communication. Big sections of the Yellowstone Park roads were blocked by slides and boulders. The road north of West Yellowstone was impassable. Big chunks of the road between the Duck Creek Y and Hebkin Dam had crumbled and slipped into the lake, causing four major breaks and several minor ones. The big slide formed an 80 million ton block at the west exit of the canyon, and at Wade Lake, road breakup had immobilized another group of terrified campers. For the first few hours after the quake, one of the biggest problems for the trapped was to get word out, and for those outside to get some idea of just what had happened. At the instant of the quake, the Berkeley seismograph showed shock in the West Yellowstone area. The first man to get word out was amateur radio operator Warren Russell, who operates station K-71CM from his trailer house in West Yellowstone, who began broadcasting news of the quake at 11.43 p.m. At 11.50, another ham, Father Francis A. Peterson of St. Anthony, Idaho, contacted Idaho State Police, who relayed the word to headquarters in Boise and thence to the National Warning System at Battle Creek, Michigan. At 12.25 a.m., on the first detail report from the western section of the alert system, it was reported that Hebkin Dam was demolished and that there were six feet of mud and water in the town of Ennis. When the quake hit at 11.37 p.m., it awoke Austin Bailey, resident maintenance man for the Montana Highway Department at Duck Creek Junction, where the road takes off along the north side of Hebkin Lake and through Madison Canyon. He noticed the light overhead jumping, furniture moved from the wall, the lights weren't working. Realizing that such a shaking would topple rocks onto the highway, he knew that he should get out and clear the roads before the heavy tourist traffic got underway next morning. Outside, everything seemed normal. He got into his own station wagon to make an initial check, started out, and thirty feet later drove over the fifteen-foot-high scarp embankment, the main earthquake fault that had dropped off between the maintenance shed and the highway. Shaken, but not hurt, he crawled out of the car, aware that something was seriously haywire and that he had to call for outside help. He went a mile to the nearest telephone. It was out. In the maintenance shed, where the heavy equipment and trucks are stored, he found the 16-ton rotary snowplow had been jolted eight feet out of its position the night before. The radio transmitter in his pickup either wasn't working or couldn't reach the area highway department headquarters in Bozeman. The road, when he managed to reach it, was shredded by long cracks running along the length of the road. He loaded up his family and started north to get the word out that they needed help on the roads in the West Yellowstone area. 
at the y he found an overturned cadillac that had flipped coming over a continuation of the same scarp that ran through his own yard driving carefully at times it was like straddling a grease rack he finally found a phone that worked at almart lodge forty miles north of west yellowstone highway district engineer george barrett logged bailey's call at one fifty a m the quake caught montana's civil defense director hugh k potter in bed potter a grizzled former montana highway patrol captain and helena's police commissioner had lived through helena's nineteen thirty five six earthquake this earlier quake had logged some three thousand recorded tremors killed four people and destroyed several buildings including helena's city hall potter wasn't greatly impressed by the somewhat diminished by distance initial shock and went back to sleep at one thirty a m the helena police rousted out city fireman ed cottingham and reported that fragments of information about an earthquake which had caused severe damage in the state were coming in on police radio at one thirty two cottingham called potter and they went down and set up state civil defense headquarters in helena city hall an arabic-style former shriners building which also houses the capital city's fire and police department for the next two hours their life was a turbulence seething with rumors the steep-walled canyons and high mountains which obstructed normal police shortwave radio added to the problem of already disrupted communications in getting information out of the quake area trying to piece together just what had happened the damage and what help was needed was like a horror movie about the thing with the exact nature of the horror emerging through the confusion and hysteria in small clues and fragments at civil defense headquarters potter realized the possibility of hebgen dam's collapse bursting shattering breaking in the quake it's an unreinforced concrete core earthfill dam seven hundred and twenty one feet long built in nineteen thirteen by the montana power company to regularize the flow of the madison for downstream power generation its failure would threaten the tourists in the valley and the sleepy six hundred population town of ennis sixty-five miles below the canyon mouth conflicting rumors fill the air that the dam was destroyed by two a m the police and highway department radio frequencies were zinging with these and other unconfirmed reports leaking in about the plight of the dam and the canyon in helena potter struggled with a vision of a smaller reenactment of the johnstown flood in ennis if the dam did or had let go first patrol montana highway patrolman glenn stevens made the first probe up the madison valley after the quake in response to a request for help from madison county sheriff lloyd brooks in virginia city stevens and deputy sheriff dutch buell wheeled down to ennis arriving at about two thirty o'clock the telephone lines were out it seemed important to warn people farther up the valley of the danger they were in some of the folks had already fled one ranch family was still in bed there were three groups of sleeping campers they didn't argue or waste time when stevens suggested they get out they just left as stevens and buell proceeded up the valley they radioed in at frequent intervals that everything seemed normal 
they reported rock on the road at various intervals from twenty-six mile hill on south to the place above hutchins bridge where boulders tumbling from rock cliff made the road impassable cabin camp operator otto kirby had got his people out but there were two house trailers parked farther up near the river stevens warned the occupants and got them started out they gassed up at kirby's ranch it was cloudy and dark at three fifteen o'clock stevens radioed in that the water was muddy but otherwise seemed okay and that he planned to cross the bridge and drive up along the river on an old road on the south side sheriff brooks tried to discourage them shouting via radio don't do it you crazy bastard the dam's broke and you'll get killed too come back it was this message which picked up on the other radios and relayed to helena sparked civil defense director hugh potter to order the evacuation of ennis with sheriff brooks warning fresh in mind stevens said every turn we got off that bench i thought we were going to meet swimming water as they moved up the valley they got the message that a couple of people had been killed in the campgrounds at cliff lake to the south of the madison so when they hit the reynolds pass road they headed that way they got there at daybreak about four forty five a m they found that a rock cliff had fallen across the road which ran along the lake marooning the campers at the campground they found two campers dead killed in a bizarre and gruesome accident the e h strikers of san mateo california were camped on an improved campsite with a fireside a picnic table and a place to park their car their three youngsters slept in a tent a hundred feet away the quake dislodged huge eight-ton chunks of rock and set them bounding downwards in a freakish crescent-shaped path tearing the ground and toppling sixty-year-old fir trees in their downward rush nimbly two of these boulders bounded over the picnic table stacked with food and landed square on top of the sleeping bags in which the striker parents slept it wasn't pretty stevens said but there wasn't anything we could do the rocks were too big to move so we went down toward the shaw ranch and got frank shaw to take his four by four truck up and move the rocks off them we drove back down to the highway to continue up to the canyon. In the freshening daylight on the way down from the high bench back into the valley, we could see a couple of trailers down the highway near the mouth of the canyon. A Fish and Game Commission plane flew over, radioing something about an obstruction across the lower end of the canyon and having two or three hours to get the people out. We had no idea what they meant we got to the trailers they wanted to know how to get out the next section of the highway was blocked with rocks and boulders we routed them across the river and out reynolds passway into idaho one of the guys said he thought there were a couple of people still alive across the river we got to the slide about five forty five o'clock the huge pile of millions of tons of rock where the highway used to be you couldn't believe what you were looking at somebody said something about a little slide little i said to dutch i'd hate like hell to see a big one the aftershocks that kept happening with rocks crashing down and dirt and dust blowing up didn't contribute to our peace of mind either but we didn't have much time to look 
we struggled across the river the slide had stopped the water but left a muddy ooze and some water lying around in pools as much as three feet deep we found mrs irene bennett lying in the rocky stream bed she was cold and shivering she didn't have a stitch on neither did her son philip who was lying near her both of them were bruised and bashed the bennett boy had a broken right leg shoulder etc we put mrs bennett on an old wooden frame canvas cot and started across the slippery river bed with her she must have weighed a hundred and eighty as we struggled through the slippery muck she kept apologizing for causing us so much trouble and told us about her husband and three other children the other folks who were camped near her and the tremendous spurt of wind and mud that threw them out from under the slide she told how she'd come to believing herself the only one of her family who had survived despairing she heard phil calling from a spot seventy-five feet away where the water had thrown him their torn hands gave the story of the agonizing effort these crippled survivors had made to drag themselves together over the rocky stream bed by radio we asked the fish and game commission plane flying overhead to go to ennis and get dr losey and fly him back and land him on the highway nearby we didn't want to disturb mrs bennett by moving her off the cot so we put her into a station wagon morris staggers who lives nearby showed up with an old iron bedstead older than anyone there and heavier too i'll never forget the struggle we had carrying the bennett boy across on it we took the bennetts up to where the plane landed on the highway and turned them over to the doctor returning to the slide area the increasing light made the slide seem even more formidable that morning working with fish and game commission etc we found all of the people mrs bennett had told us about except one like mrs bennett and her son all of these bodies had been stripped of their clothing and showed the effects of being beat to hell by wind and water the coroner said all five of them died by drowning we never did find mrs marilyn stowe wife of sandy utah elementary school music teacher t mark stowe whose body we did find she must still be under the slide i just don't care to go through any more mourning like that stephen said End of part two.